Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, which continues our Exploring the Operatic Canon series, Dr. Naomi Andre discusses the Italian origin of opera and the concept of the operatic canon, as well as changes and influences over the years and some of her joy as she looks forward to the inclusion of wonderful new works. My name is Naomi Andre, and I am an opera scholar who looks at opera in both traditional places, such as the opera stage and concert halls, um, as well as non-traditional places or things that might be a little unexpected. So I love thinking about opera in both all the spectacle and its regal pageantry, as well as opera just being understandable for everyone. I love it, and I want to share these goodies, these wonders of opera with people. But a really fun fact is that opera was a reaction to what was immediately preceding it. So at the end of the Renaissance in the 15th and 16th century, we had a style that was very polyphonic, many voices singing at the same time. So magicals and motets and masses. And so you had five voices and they were singing the text at different points. So you sort of knew if it were a mass, you know, there's the curie eleison and Christe eleison, but the words would just all happen at the same time. So at the end, end of the 16th century, the late 1500s, there were a group of people who said, we are interested in these humanistic ideals of the Greeks, where they write like Plato and Aristotle, that the words and music can be so powerful and move the soul. Now, they didn't have any exemplars or, or written scores of this. So this is what they're reading and their ideals for how music can move the soul. And so the very first operas had a very simple sort of baseline, a basso continuo is what it developed into. So like a stringed instrument, later that includes sort of simple chords on a keyboard and a, a singer who would recite very powerful words and then sort of elaborate an ornament. But it was one person usually singing at a time. Not a surprise, too, with the power of music, one of the favorite stories to tell at the end of the 16th and into the beginning of the 17th century was the Orpheus myth. Opera originally started, it was invented outside of Florence. In fact, they're called the Florentine Camerata. And so the early history of opera, what we call through the Baroque in the 17th and into the 18th century, it's very much dominated by courts, special courts that would have uh, composers and there were special operas. It wasn't until 1637 where you have the first public opera house, the San Cassiano in Venice, where you could have people who weren't connected to a court. But I think you probably still needed to pay a lot of money or sort of know who to answer to or, you know, how to get a ticket, but you could pay for a ticket. And basically what you would do is you'd rent a box and you would help support the theater. And so there were more theaters. So opera is really an Italian invention, but within the 17th century, it does go to France. But in the Baroque, you've just got all these sort of houses beginning. France had their language that they would set to music. Other countries uh, would basically have Italian opera. Hamburg had an important opera court in the 18th century where they would get Italian musicians who would go to the German states. It's not until you get into the 19th century where you have languages outside of Italian and, well, again, France is sort of that exception that where they're doing their own opera too. 
But then you begin to get um, German opera, Russian opera, Czech opera, different nationalities. So the Baroque is really this wonderful time for opera where you have beautiful tunes. You've got um, Italian that is just so vowel driven. So it works really well for opera. One of the early things in the beginning of opera is what is most important, the words or the music. Prima le parole, first the words, o prima la musica, or first the music. And sort of the biggest known early composer of operas is Claudio Monteverdi. He has an Orfeo opera from 1607. And in fact, that was a big debate with Alessandro Strigio, who was the librettist who wrote the words for Orfeo. Now, as a lot of us know, Having an either or situation isn't always the easiest uh, way to get an answer. And it's not always the best way to approach a question. The more I think about opera, the more I think that language is really important for expressing a culture and different styles. One of the reasons why German opera didn't really get going until the 19th century, and you have Karl Maria von Weber in the 18 teens and 20s, but it's not until Richard Wagner. He found a way, and it's a good example for why language is so important, because if you think of Italian and how versification in Italian prosody works is that you've got different numbers of syllables and then where the stress is, um, whether it's the last syllable, the penultimate syllable, the anti-penultimate syllable of a line, and how we think of, particularly in the um, 19th century, with sort of the golden age of Rossini, Bellini, and Donizetti, there were these firm rules for how to write a libretto and what was recitative, which is the part that tells the story, the narrative, sort of the conversation. And then what were the um, lyrical moments where you have the arias or the duets or the trios, the big tune moments, and whether you had seven or 12 syllables for the recitative, these were understood by the composer and the librettist. And it allowed people, once you know the, the, knew those conventions, you could write things quickly. One thing that doesn't get enough attention in opera studies is the role of the librettist. And I think if we're looking at opera today and sort of there's such a vibrant current opera scene, the composer and the librettist are frequently two people, occasionally one person, but like in the past, frequently two people. Earlier librettists, especially writing Italian opera, there are all these versification rules and sort of conventions that people understood. Uh, we also have a couple of really celebrated um, composer-libretto combinations. The three that come to mind are Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Lorenzo da Ponte, and they have three collaborations, The Marriage of Figaro from 1786, Don Giovanni from 87, 88, and Così Fan Tutti in um, 1790. Those three operas do something so amazing. And Lorenzo da Ponte is such an interesting character. He ends up being banned from Italy and comes to the United States and is, one of, is the first professor of Italian studies at Columbia University. The other two really important or at least celebrated uh, composer-libretto relationships are at the end of the 19th century with Giuseppe Verdi and Arrigo Boito. Giulio Ricordi, who was acting both as Verdi's publisher and agent, put them together to do a revision of Simon Bocanegra, which was originally from 1857, but then there was um, the revision of the council chamber scene and some others where instead of having... Piave, who was the original librettist for Bocanegra, who had passed away. Giulio Ricordi got um, Arrigo Boito, and that's from 1881. And that really went well. 
working with Verdi, he wrote Mephistopheles and then an unfinished Nerone opera. But 1887 with Otello um, is a Boito-Verdi collaboration. And then the Verdi's last opera from 1893, Falstaff. So two Shakespeare settings, the first based on Shakespeare's Othello and the second one, Falstaff, is based on the Falstaff character from The Merry Wives of Windsor and the Henry IV plays. So let's think for a moment about Verdi and Wagner. Every now and then in music history, we have two composers who represent an era that are born in the same year. So interestingly, um, just off the top of my head, thinking of um, 1685 is a really important time because we have Johann Sebastian Bach is born that year, George Frederick Handel, as well as Domenico Scarlatti. All of them live into the 1750s and they're all doing important things for sort of what they're representing. Well, 1813 is another one of those dates. And that's when we have Giuseppe Verdi and Richard Wagner who are born both in the, that year Wagner dies in 1883. He's younger. Uh, he dies at a younger age. And Verdi lives all the way to 1901. These two composers took opera, so a big monumental genre of the 19th century, as opposed to leaders singing, you know, song or um, chamber music or string, such as a string quartet or piano music, taking these big genres that have drama and story and singing and an orchestra, and they really take it to a, a wonderful level. Wagner in Germany and really giving a sense of what German opera at its sort of real maturity and how you get that language working so well. And Verdi with taking a tradition, a very rich tradition that has a lot of superstar moments and making it his own. Verdi was born in 1813 from an early age in his teens um, after he had his parents had paid for music lessons and he studied with the organist his family brought him to Busetto and he was able to sort of apprentice with a man named Antonio Barezzi. And there Verdi worked with an orchestra because Barezzi was sort of a patron and he had a philharmonic society. And Verdi sort of learned how to orchestrate and conduct and sort of get his real training. He marries Antonio Barezzi's daughter, Margarita, and he goes to Milan and he's ready to sort of burst into the scene. Milan has one of the oldest opera houses, um, La Scala, and he's ready to go. But it's it's hard going for Verdi. He gets a commission for sort of three operas from the impresario, the producer um, at La Scala, sort of who pulls it all together. And this is in the late 1830s. His first opera, Oberto, Il Conte di Som uh, Bonifacio, Oberto, the Count of Som Bonifacio. His second opera was actually a comic opera, Un Giorno del Regno, King for a Day. And what is comic opera in Italy in the eight, late 1830s? It's not really happening so much. Comic opera, we have Rossini in the teens and early 20s. Donizetti is writing comic opera in Paris in the 30s and 40s. But Italy, from about 1830 on, operas are sort of moving into the serious, heavy, and what become tragic operas where people die. But so here we're moving into the heavy, tragic operas, and Verdi's supposed to write a comic opera, his second opera. To make matters even worse, his wife, Margarita, and their two children, Virginia and Isilio, 
all die. Not all together, but the three of them all die. Verdi's trying to write a comic opera and it it didn't go over too well. Bartolomeo Morelli, who was the impresario, he says, no, I need another opera from you. So long story about how Nabucco um, was rejected by other composers. And um, Morelli is like, well, I have this libretto. Why don't we give this to the young Verdi? You know, I, I need another opera from him. And Verdi sets to write it. And this becomes a huge hit. And it's a hit for a couple of reasons. One, Verdi finds his voice, and it's still performed in opera companies today. That You don't get to see Oberto or Un Giorno, but Nabucco does get performed. And even though it's, um, it's early Verdi, Verdi said later on he would never set a story like that later in his career because it's biblical. And, you know, biblical stories aren't usually on the opera stage. They're in oratorios or something like that. But Verdi sort of finds his voice with this opera. Another very helpful thing for this opera is that the leading soprano, the prima donna, was Giuseppina Stroponi, who was very well known in Primo Ottocento opera. So this is opera of the early 19th century, Donizetti, Mercadanti, Percini, Bellini. So the well-known Bellini and Donizetti, as well as some of those other lesser knowns. And she was a, a pretty big star. She saw the opera. She was scheduled to sing Abagaila, the lead, and she convinced Marelli to put it in a more prestigious part of the calendar um, of the schedule. And this was a huge hit. Now, it's an interesting thing because Giuseppina, sadly, was sort of on the down part of her career. So as their stars were rising, Verdi's star rose with this and her star was sort of coming down. However, they end up being a huge love story in the 19th century. And so here was Verdi, one of the most eligible bachelors, but his first wife, uh, Margarita, had died. He was trying to figure out how to write opera. Here's Giuseppina, who's very experienced, gives a beautiful performance of Abagaila, and also was very savvy with um, reading libretti. She read Spanish and Verdi didn't. So for um, Il Trovatore by Antonio Garcia Gutierrez, she was the one we think who probably said, hey, this is a good play. Why don't you think about turning it into an opera? As well as Gutierrez's um, Simón Bocanegra, that was also one that Giuseppina probably brought to his attention. She also was great at giving him advice because all of a sudden he's a superstar <laughs> and she knows how to have a career in the theater. So it takes them a while to get married because Verdi's career in the 40s, uh, Nabucco is um, 41 and Giuseppina moves to Paris and she has a salon and uh, a teaching a studio there. Verdi would escape to Paris to see what was happening in Paris because it's such an important cultural city. When he moves into um, a house, buys some property um, in Busetto, um, where the Barezzi family had been. And he buys a piece of property and he calls this estate Santa Agata. And this is in 1849. It was when stuff started getting built and they were able to move in. They finally do get married in 1859. It takes them 10 years, but they are the love story. And um, she dies first, I think in 1896 or seven and he lives to 191. So it's a great story. They don't have children together, but his um, niece, Philomena, is um, a young child that they sort of raised together and is one of the Verdi heirs. 
Um, the early period really kicks off with his third opera, Nabucco, from 1841. And then he writes a whole bunch of operas in the 1840s. There's I Lombardi alla Prima Crociata, the Lombards of the First Crusade. There's Ernani, which was his first opera for Venice. There's I Dui Foscari, which was for Florence, the Teatro della Pergola. There's Giovanna d'Arco, a Schiller play based on Joan of Arc. Attila Macbeth, which was one of the other big operas from this time period. So in the early period, it's Nabucco, Ernani, and Macbeth. Uh, Macbeth is from 47. And those were sort of the operas that get performed the most now. You'll see some of the others, but not as much. After Macbeth, you've got um, I Masnadieri. Masnadieri was it um, was his first opera performed in London, and Jenny Lind sang the leading role. Il Corsaro, Jerusalem, which was a remake of I Lombardi for Paris, the Paris Opera. So Verdi at this point still hasn't had an original opera for Paris. And then you have La Battaglia di Legnano and um, Louisa Miller. Louisa Miller is from 49. That's the Schiller um, source uh, based on Kabbalah und Liebe. And um, that one is still in the repertory. That sort of ends the early period. So there are a lot of them in the four, up through the 40s. He calls this time the years in the galleys. He moves to Santa Agata. He's done really well. And then you get the operas, sort of this middle trilogy of operas. There's Stefelio, which is kind of right after Louisa Miller from 1850. But then the three transitional operas, which are some of the most beloved operas of Verdi today, are Rigoletto, Il Trovatore, and La Traviata. And those were all written between 1851 and 53. And as you might recognize them because those are uh, favorites and they're performed all the time. This is the time, the early operas are very indebted to the Primo Ottocento convention. So they come out of Bellini and Donizetti in terms of the language we hear today. Mercadante, Pacini, the Ricci brothers, there are other lesser known composers and they all are part of that world. Verdi emerges as a leader and in the 50s, he starts writing operas that have slightly heavier orchestrations and which means that the voices have to be a little heavier to soar over these larger orchestras. We're still talking about fairly modest orchestras compared to his late period, but this is where things are beginning to change. And Verdi, he's always original, but he's trying new things. spend a moment talking about the canon and the operatic canon. And one thing I want to say is that the canon is not set in stone and it's not absolute. What the canon represents is what we as opera companies, as opera lovers for what we pay for and what we go to, what we determine should be performed. The canon is something I feel should always be changing and examined. And certain, I mean, it's sad that we don't have opera every single day. And so we could have so many operas. So the sad thing is that a canon does refer to certain operas and can't be more expansive to include everything that's always in there. So Verdi, Mozart, Wagner, Richard Strauss, these are composers, Handel now. See, Handel wasn't part of the canon in the 20th century for a long time. 
But wonderfully, as people understand more about how to the performance practice uh, issues there, as you have a basso continuo, as you have these interesting voices that are now sung by countertenors, Handel is now back into the canon. And that's that's wonderful. There are newer operas. And one of the things I personally feel is really important as somebody who loves opera and loves the canon and never wants to see it go away. But I also want new operas because I think there's a special relationship between operas. In the 19th century, they were having a function almost like what movies used to be because now we have the internet. But in the 70s and 80s and even in the 90s, the movies commented on sort of what was happening, new developments in technology was sound effects. And it was a space where we could all gather as in our different publics and sort of look at big issues. This is what I feel opera did in the 19th century. And it's what I want opera to continue doing. If opera stays a museum piece, you know, with older works, then sort of new interesting issues will will just have to go to other genres and opera can do it so beautifully. So one of the great things we're beginning to see is more of a nurturing of women composers. It's not that there weren't women who couldn't compose before, but opera is a little different than string quartets, piano works, or even leader or song, where you can do that in a domestic space and you can sort of, and a lot of women who are musicians would write for these instruments. The symphony, the concertos, things with orchestras, operas, it's hard You need to sort of practice writing for them because it's just a lot of things to put together and you have to sort of find your voice. So I think that new works in the canon need to be coming from composers and voices we haven't heard of so much before. One thing my research has um, helped me find is that there are a lot of operas by Black composers. And while I'm based in the United States, I also am talking about Black composers who are African-American, as well as Black composers who are part of a larger diaspora. And I was so excited to find all these operas happening in South Africa. And without going into all those details, why do we have operas in South Africa? Well, there were operas, sort of white operas, and they were segregated spaces that were happening. And a lot of the tunes, the melodies, the ensembles found their ways into Black choirs, township choirs, school choirs, choral societies. And so um, a lot of Black singers actually know some of the repertory from um, having sung it in, in choirs before. Uh, And there's just an incredible singing tradition there. So I would say that um, it's been very exciting to see operas. I always knew in my traditional music education coming in the 80s and 90s that there's Scott Joplin's Tremonisha, William Grant Still from the middle of the 20th century. And what was just beginning was Anthony Davis with X Life and Times of Malcolm X from 1986. So taking those few things, I thought, okay, some Black folks were writing operas. What stories are they writing? Who are they putting on on stage and featuring? And I found out that there were a lot of Black composers writing, and there were Black singers who were singing mainstream operas, repertory, canonic, white story operas, and that these operas that were being written, Harry Lawrence Freeman, there's this wonderful archive that just popped up at Columbia University in 2008, and Voodoo is one of his operas that I got to see a reconstructed 
concert performance. And um, there are, in that archive, I've heard there are at least 20 other operas. There's a Black Opera Research Network, which is an online site that I'm involved with that has this great list of Black operas, is over 180 pages, and it is still being at, it's a living list that keeps being um, uh, grown. These are operas I want to see come into the canon. And it looks like Anthony Davis's first opera, X, Life and Times of Malcolm X from 1986, is getting some performances. Yuval Sharon is doing a performance at the Michigan Opera Theater, and I think Opera Omaha, um, and maybe some other companies will be doing it in um, this is next season. We also have new operas that are getting a lot of attention. Blue is one by Janine Tesori and um, Taswell Thompson. Anthony Davis has several operas, both on non-Black topics, such as his second opera, Under the Double Moon, a sci-fi opera. Tanya about the um, Patty Hearst kidnapping. Um, But he has Amistad from 1997 that premiered at the Chicago Lyric, and really wonderfully, um, the Central Park Five that premiered in June of 2019 at Long Beach Opera, which I got to see, and which we're so happy won the Pulitzer Prize just last April. So in terms of operas, I want people to think of it as this incredible tradition that has wonderful goodies that are both traditional and canonic and well, well-known, as well as operas that are have been written, but we're still discovering them. And we have operas that it's a, I'm so happy, it's a hot genre, people are writing it. So we're getting new operas and new voices. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. LA Opera stays focused on connecting audiences with the beautiful and exciting works in the traditional operatic canon and beyond. We still have a lot to look forward to in 2022, and we hope you will join us for our upcoming productions, as well as an exciting new season this fall that will be announced in early February.